Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. One thing we haven't done yet that I think is a good time to address in this particular lecture is thinking through the use of the word saved as it's relative to time. I only put the word salvation in quotes because it can be used in various ways, even within the parameters, as we've said, of God's eternal salvation. And that we're going to break down just real quickly in terms of time. As the first point says, we want to look at past and future aspects and then settle into present aspects, which will carry on not only through the rest of the lecture tonight, but into next week. Uh, That is our plan, at least, Lord willing, to get an entire lecture on the process of sanctification. But right now, let's think through letter A, the distant past. And this could have been broken down, I, I suppose, into eternal past and not so distant. But suffice what I've got, I've got. So jot this down if you would. We need to think of salvation in terms of being able to say that the Father saved us in eternity past by his choice. Now, we dealt with this on a couple of lectures, one in the experience of salvation, and then prior to that, the lecture on predestination and election. And that, we can say, as we understand God's sovereignty to the extent that we do, that it was a done deal when God decided it so. And in that sense, we can look at passages that we've already referenced, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and as we praise God, along with Paul and the Ephesians and the churches of Asia Minor, we should be able to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which hasn't happened yet, but he's done it, and it's stated in the past tense. Verse 4, now this is the foundation for that, even as he chose us, past tense, in him before the foundation of the world. So in his mind, done deal, that we should be holy and blameless before him, which is going to necessitate this process we're going to look at tonight, the present reality of our salvation. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He's decided, he's chosen, he's purposed, he's predestined. These are things that he's done. And in that sense, we can say, though we don't normally mean this when we say it, that I am or have been saved. I've been saved in one sense because God has planned it so. That may be a little bit theoretical, but you understand what we mean there. There are interesting statements in Revelation, a couple of them. I'll give you the latter one in Revelation 17, 8, which says essentially the same thing. And that is, in this particular context, the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the, of the world will marvel to see the beast. Now, that's just thrown in there in the context of talking about what's happening with the beast and the people worshiping the beast, having the mark of the beast, all of those things in, in Revelation 17. Earlier in the book, it had talked about the fact that the names have been written in this book from the foundation of the world, those who have been written, that is. And so you have this sense of completion that if your name is there, it's been there from the foundation of the world, not just talking about, as the Old Testament uses it, the book of life, because there are statements about God removing people from life on this planet. 
in that sense of having names blotted out of the book. But I'm talking about the Lamb's book of life that's described in Revelation chapter 20 when we all come to judgment. We're going to see who should be judged based on whether or not their name is or is not in this book of life that's described here uh, and elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And that is something that has been done before the foundation of the world, as it's described here, or not been done before the foundation of the world. So, this is the sense in which we can say we're saved in part, uh, at least as we mean it, of course in whole it has been done, but in part we mean he saved us by his choice in eternity past. We can also say I have been saved because Jesus has already done the work to save us in his ministry 2,000 years ago by his death. So in that sense, salvation is completed. It's completed because God has purposed it and willed it and decreed it and elected us and predestined us. But it's also completed in the sense that he's died on the cross and paid for our sins. Now, this gives people problems when they think through, what about Old Testament saints? They must have been saved some other way. But as I often try to illustrate this, they were saved on the credit card and we've been saved on the debit card. For us, it is a salvation that's in pastime. For an Old Testament saint like Daniel or Jeremiah or Isaiah, they would be saved by the death of Christ yet in the future. But you follow from our perspective, we've been saved in the past, in this particular aspect of thinking through salvation because of Christ's death already completed. He said to Telestai on the cross, your sins and mine, Colossians says, were nailed to that cross. So that was paid in the past, in time and in space, 2,000 years ago, roughly speaking. For instance, 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, he saved us and called us. Now look at the combination of both of these in this text. To a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now there's an echo of my first point, letter A, number one. God had planned this, and he's already figured this out, and the payment plan, you could say even if Christ hadn't yet been Sacrificed on the cross, the Old Testament person could look ahead to that, trusting in God's forgiveness, whether the mechanism of that was clear in their thoughts or not, but God would credit them that salvation that would be paid for in the future. For us, we're looking back. He's done that. He's purposed it in this case, and he's planned it before eternity has, in eternity past, before the world began. Now, notice verse 10. Here's the second point, which has now been manifested, this purpose of grace in Christ through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This is the last recorded book we have from the Apostle Paul, by the way. So in time, this is as late as we have for Paul as he looks back. This is the longest distance he's had to look back in writing in the New Testament at the death of Christ. He says, look, he's appeared, our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished, there it is, past tense, death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He brought the good news He paid the penalty of it on the cross. It's been settled. It can be spoken of in the past. He's abolished death for us. We can speak of that in the past tense, although there's more to come, obviously, as it relates to being saved. But the payment has been done and paid for in the past. Easy enough? Simple. Let's think future now. The future. We must speak, and though Christians don't often speak this way, we should, at least in our own minds, probably more often than we do, See salvation as a yet-to-be-completed reality for us. We need to think more often, let me repeat that, 
as salvation is something yet to be completed. It's not that there's uncertainty in it. It's just that there should be a focused hope in the future. And if you've sat under my preaching very long at all, I hope you recognize that this is not just a non-prosperity gospel, but it should be antithetical to the prosperity gospel because I often remind you from the pulpit that the Bible would teach us that Christianity is really not about this life. It's about the next life. Of course, there are plenty of present realities that we experience, and there's lots of things that should make this life something that we can find some kind of underlying profound joy in, but ultimately we're looking forward to the future. Now, most Christians don't think that way, and certainly the massive prosperity gospel thinkers don't think that way. They sit there and imbibe on this, what I often call the over-realized eschatology, that all the things that God promises in the future, I want them now, like that gal on the, uh, you know, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory got to have it now. That's what they want. And in their, you know, petulant, uh, incessant calling on God to give them all the blessings of the kingdom now, they don't understand that so much of the Bible says, you want to talk about salvation, it's yet to come. It hasn't arrived yet. Now, the most important things, God's choice and Christ's work, well, those were in the past. But in the future, we need to realize the penalty of sin has not been expended yet on sinners. Oh, there's lots of effects of sin and there's sowing and reaping, but God's judgment hasn't come. So the real salvation, when you wipe your brow from the perspiration of thinking, wow, I didn't get the wrath of God, that feeling you haven't had to the full. You can only imagine it. As you say, I'm so great. You feel like bunions, you know, the pack is off of you. Oh, it's great. My sin, I don't bear it anymore. We sing the hymns and the songs and we think about that. But really, the ultimate relief of salvation, you've yet to fully experience because the judgment isn't here yet. So in that sense, you need to think, I will be saved from God's just penalty. Romans 5, 8 and 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's already accomplished that. That's the first point, letter A. Number two, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that's a foretaste of where we're going here on the backside of the worksheet, much more shall we be saved. We've been justified. That's the aspect, one of the aspects of current salvation, present reality of salvation. But the future salvation is the saving of our lives from the coming anger of God. That is so important for us to catch that ultimately my salvation has not been accomplished yet. It's like being a drowning person in the ocean and I do have the lifeguard who comes to save me, but I'm not yet on the shore. I'm still out here in an imperiled place, in an imperiled body, and and I've got to recognize there's relief because I'm attached to the Savior, if you will, to carry this illustration further, but the reality of our salvation is still future. We've yet to be pulled on to the shores of the kingdom, if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 For God has not destined us for wrath. It's coming, but we're going to be saved out of it. But to obtain, here's another future statement. This is coming in the future. To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking to non-Christians that need to be regenerate and justified. He's talking to people that are already saved, saying we're going to obtain salvation. So in that sense, I'm not saved yet. That's not an unbiblical statement for a Christian to say, as long as you understand what we're saying. I was saved in eternity past. I was saved when Christ died on a cross and said it is finished. And in the future, I will be saved from the coming wrath of God who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Future salvation. We don't think of that enough. And when we don't think of that enough, we start to feel like God, if he doesn't give us enough goodies and toys, we think, well, this really isn't worth it. And like the apostle Paul said in 1 
Corinthians chapter 15, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be what? Pitied. You ought to feel bad for us. Because if this is all there is, if all we really have is Joel Olstein and the prosperity gospel, you should be really sad about it. Because nobody really gets all that they want under that anyway, except for him, I suppose, and not even him. But the reality is, even when you get that stuff, you recognize sinful people in a fallen world with fallen stuff, it just doesn't deliver. What we're looking for is the hope of the future salvation that is coming, and it begins with being exempted from the coming penalty of my sin. Fantastic. There's something else you should look forward to, and the older you get, God makes sure to remind you how much you look forward to it, and that is that you'll be saved from your fallen bodies, your fallen bodies. Now, that should be something that's not just because you have arthritis and you ache and you can't sleep or whatever your problems might be, but because as you love God, so we'll get into this this week and next week, and you want to serve God, you've got a problem that's inherent in your flesh. And as I talk about it from the platform, I often talk about hardware and software and firmware. And, and, and I think we even did it on a Thursday night not too long ago, didn't we? Somewhere I did it. Hardware body, software, spirit, firmware that's attached to the hardware, that creates a lot of problems for me. And I look forward to that kind of freeing. Now remember the word, we looked at the word redemption in our earlier study, that freeing from that bondage. Well, I'm still in bondage to my flesh, but I look forward to salvation because I know that just like this world has been subject to futility. My body is subject to futility, not just the hardware, but the firmware that's attached to it, the the impulses of my flesh. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of, of our bodies. If I ask you, are you an adopted child of God? You'd probably say, if you're a Christian, yes. Well, in one sense, you are because you've been given a promise of adoption. You have a certificate, but you haven't been extracted yet from the, from the slavery of a sinful body. And that redemption's yet to come. So in some sense, you've got to realize we so often as Christians want to see the present realities of our salvation, but they're only a, a, a promise of what God will do in the future. The whole point of our adoption, as it's often posited in Scripture, is that it comes with the promise of the Spirit that is a guarantee of my future redemption. And my redemption in this text is tied to the redemption of my body. And there my adoption will be complete. Now, he says this, which I wish every Christian could understand in a profound way. And perhaps with enough disillusionment and disenchantment with with the lies of some preachers, we can get around to saying, I get this and I live here. And that is this. For in this hope we were saved. Okay, I am saved in the past tense, but my adoption is yet to come, at least the completedness of it. But I'm hoping for it. I'm ready for it. I was saved in hope. Now, hope that is seen, if I already had it, if it's right before me, well, then it's not hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You know, the Christian life is about waiting, not about waiting for God to give you another goodie in this temporal life, the way so many people preach about it. But it's about the ultimate fulfillment of everything we preach about every single week as it relates to the kinds of things that are coming with the completion of God's kingdom and all that's coming for us as his children. So in the past, we've been saved by God's choice, his plan, his election, his predestination. And in the past, we can rightly say we were saved because of Christ's work on a cross. But the reality of our future is that we're going to be saved from the wrath of God and we are going to be saved from these fallen bodies 
And lastly, let's make this point, we'll be saved from our fallen world. From our fallen world. You see the word salvation connected to a kind of saving from this world. Now the world is such a broad statement in the scripture. Cosmos in Greek. And it's used in so many different ways. But one of the ways it's used is the freedom that we have from a system that is fallen. And we look forward to the system being replaced. And in that sense, let's use this passage. Acts chapter 2 verse 40 that uses the word sozo, the Greek word for save. Look at it. With many other words, he bore witness, that's Peter, and he continued to exhort them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I'm going to be extracted out. Now, in one sense, I'm extracted really into a huddle of sorts. I know we joke about the holy huddle, but that's what the church is in part. We are the ecclesia. Ek is out of Kaleo, the second part of that compound word, is to call. We're called out of this world. We're saved out of this world. We huddle up in the church, and then we're supposed to go out and penetrate a lost society to gather more people into the church and become fishers of men. But the idea of being saved from this world system is something that we are only partially, you know, partial reality now because we're here. We don't live in a commune. This is not something that we establish seven days a week. We gather together. We experience something, according to Hebrews 6, of the foretaste of the good things in the future that God is going to do, but the reality is yet coming. But I can say, I know that I've already begun that, in that I have a distinct identification with the people of God. But all that leads us to think about the reality of what God is going to do, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are to thus be dissolved, speaking of this planet and all that's here, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness. We ought to be the ecclesia called out from the rest of the world. We ought to be people that are holy and godly and distinct. Waiting for, here's the future tense of our salvation. And hastening the coming of the day of God. See, the day of God wasn't when I got saved. The day of God wasn't even in a salvific sense when Christ died on a cross. Right? Ultimately, the day of God is coming when this is all consummated, as the Bible likes to put it. The coming and and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Because of which, and this is how it has to happen. The old has to be taken away. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, here's the future. We're not over-realized eschatology Christians. We're looking for the eschatology of God. According to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there ought to be this settled sense of my salvation being realized in that I am looking forward to being freed from the penalty of my sin, the enslavement to my body and its passions, and ultimately the world that I live in. Hebrews talks about that and gives us examples of Moses and Abraham who lived this way. And it said these, the patriarchs in this particular context, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised which is it's the same for us, you realize. Unless we're the generation that gets taken up in, in the rapture, you understand that we don't receive in this life what is promised. It's a guarantee of what's to come. And so we wait for it. These people in this passage, so it is for us, haven't received the things promised, but they, having seen them and greeted them from afar, there's the faith of these men, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. We're waiting to be saved out of this world. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
otherworldly Christian thinking is the norm in Scripture. This is not our home. And in affluent times and in affluent places, it becomes tempting for Christians to try and somehow conflate their Christianity and all that the other generations of Christians have hoped for and say, can't we have that now? And we need to recognize that's not how God would have us think. Our salvation, in many ways, is yet future. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about the realities that we can say are now and the experience that goes with it. We've already talked about the experience of salvation, and my focus won't be so much on experience, but what the Bible would say is true about what's going on in these two words, regeneration and on the back side of the worksheet, justification. Those are the two words we're going to talk about tonight and what the Bible has to say. And of course, there is experience in both of those, and we'll look at that. But let's first start letter A with a definition. Regeneration. This should be the easy one, the easy one for us to think about. Most of us can look at a word like that. We see the word re, we see the word genesis in the middle of generation, regeneration, very literal kind of definition, to be be reborn, to be born again. Sure, that's true, but let's be a little bit more specific. To be more theological, though not extensive, regeneration is the act of God. I think we can all recognize that we're going to look at a lot of things tonight that will make that very clear. It is the act of God based on the work of Christ. He doesn't do this without drawing from the merits of Christ. This has to be something that is attached to the work of Christ in God's plan. And he grants them, and here's the core of it. He grants them, and I put this in quotes only because it's not a very concrete way to say it. But I must say it to show the connection to the word. And that is, he grants them new life. Life again. A different kind of life that's different than the one they got biologically. A kind of spiritual life. We'll look at that. And this is important too. It's a kind of new life that reorients that person toward God. If you don't have that, you don't have regeneration, as we'll see. Regeneration is the act of God based on the work of Christ, granting people new life and a reorientation that's always a package deal toward God. That's what we're going to talk about. And I decided to give you the definition first, and then we'll unpack it as we go through this. Did you get all that down? Does that make sense? It will. Letter B. Let's talk about its necessity. This should be easy for us. No problems here, I trust. Jesus talking in John 3. I recently dealt with this on a weekend sermon. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, and there it is. We could get into the Greek, but it doesn't much help us here. But here's the idea of regeneration. Unless one is born a second time, born again, there's a rebirth. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So I can't get to that place, that future place where I'm saved from this world and I'm ushered into the next world, which is the culmination of my salvation. I can't get there. I can't get into that. I can't even get my citizen card to become an alien in this life looking forward to its future reality. can't get that unless I'm born again. I need regeneration. Nicodemus said, and I don't know exactly what his mindset was here, maybe to obfuscate, maybe to redirect, maybe it's just a dumb way to respond to Christ. But here it comes. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I can't believe that that was a really sincere response. Either way, Jesus dealt with a lot of multi-layered statements from people, but he goes right back to him and he says, listen, let's just make this super clear. You want to make light of it? You want to misdirect? Whatever. Here's the thing. Unless, truly, truly, that's the way he says things with great emphasis. There's two exclamation points. If you're Spanish, inverted, it's right at the beginning of the sentence. Here it comes. Yes, for sure. You need to know this. I'm telling you with emphasis. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. No entry, 
no reality. You can't be there. You've got to be born again. Easy. So I've got to say, if I am not regenerate, I don't see the kingdom. I don't have salvation or exemption from the coming wrath of God. I don't have freedom from my fallen body. Letter C. We talked about this in the definition as a work of God. I suppose this harkens back, as a couple things already have in this lecture, to the reality of God's decisions that precede everything that happens, his decrees. And when it comes to the saving work of regeneration and someone being made new, this second birth, here are the words, right, to be born again, this kind of new life has to happen by the decision of God. Take a look at this at the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Jesus, hear the word, that's the focus of the prologue of John. He came into his own, meaning there, the Jewish people. The Jewish Messiah comes to the Jewish people, but his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him, did not embrace their Messiah. They rejected him. But to all who did receive him, to those that did open up and embrace him as their Messiah, who believe, there's our word pastuo, we looked at a few weeks back, trusted in his name, He gave them the right to become the children of God. And a lot of people want to put a period there. Well, that's fantastic. They use the word receive Christ a little differently than it's used here. But let's just give them that for a minute. Hey, receive Christ. You get the right then if you receive Christ to become a child of God. There's not a period there. There's a common there. And the thought continues. Who were, note that, were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. So it's not the first birth. It's not that birth that takes place in the biological timeline. It's something else. It's the thing that he's going to talk to Nicodemus about two chapters later. And it happens not because someone decides to, and this is why rebirth is a good analogy to once again underscore the sovereignty of God and the predestination of God, because you didn't give any thought to or any decision. You didn't deliberate as to whether you would be born the first time. And in this passage, it says, you will receive the Messiah. And he will become for you that gateway to being a child of God if you were born of God. And that happens by the decision and the will of God, not the will of people or parents deciding to have a child. Do you follow that? In that sense, without getting into that, because we could spend a lot of time on that, I suppose, if you really want to talk technically about regeneration, it precedes saving faith. Think about that. I can't even embrace, to use the word There, in in verse 12, I can't receive or believe in his name unless I've been born of God. Now, if you want to start tearing apart the time sequence, I mean, this is not a sequence we experience. We don't know how that works other than you say, well, I, I embraced the Messiah and I trusted in him. And the only way you could have done that is if God has decided to give you regeneration. You don't have faith in Christ. You don't have a reception or an openness of Christ that's at least that effectual drawing, that efficacious calling, unless God has decided to say, I'm going to give you new life. In other words, Lazarus doesn't walk out of the grave from the land of the dead to the land of the living unless God first grants life. This is a little bit, and this is admittedly a bizarre statement and and difficult to to grasp. But let's at least see that that within this statement in John 3 to Nicodemus, Jesus gives us that sense of, man, this is not something manufactured by people. He talks about being born again. He says, do not marvel that I say to you, Nicodemus, that you must be born again, for the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Not that we're like the Spirit now, You know, you're erratic. You don't know what's going to happen. No, God 
Though he seems to, the spirit who's credited with this work of regeneration is not erratic, but you don't know when it's coming. And then you don't know what's next, except you see things falling down. Your patio furniture falls over. Your umbrella goes down. You go, well, the wind must be there. And when someone is born again, you say, look at that. The mysterious work of God whipping through the first century and saving people like Saul, who's persecuting the church and making him the apostle Paul, knocking him off his horse and giving him life. Those are the kinds of things he says, it's, it's, it's something you should know that is sovereign to God's decision making in his spirit, doing what he chooses to do. And that, though there's more layers, I suppose, to untangling that, and I've worked on that with you before in other sermons, but at least it means that, that God is one who sovereignly decides to bring new life to people. Letter D. The best way for us to round out, I think, our understanding of regeneration is to pair it, or contrast it, I should say, with what we see in the scripture it contrasted with. New life is contrasted with or compared with relational death. Back to this passage, it's so helpful for us on so many levels. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We'll skip past the explanation of the badness of my following after my impulses in my state of deadness, but let's just start with the statement up front. Verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So as it relates to God, I was very much dead, but as it relates to my sin, I was very much alive. And he talks all about that, as you know. And then in verse 3, it says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, here it comes, that's the subject, God, made us alive together with Christ. Again, this is an action of God. We certainly get that from that statement, but notice how it's contrasted. By grace, you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him, and he's seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ has full access to the Father. To give you that image back in the book of Hebrews, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, full access to the Father. You, on his merit, can come in and have full access to God, relationally. Now, you don't have that experience of unmitigated relationship with God the way we will. We see through a glass dimly, so to speak. Then we'll see face to face because our Christianity is always forward-looking to the next world. But we do understand that my relationship with the living God comes through the work of, the, of Christ, the high priest. And in this passage says that relationship was opened up because of the decision of God to have us be made alive. There's the picture of a kind of life I didn't have the day before I was a Christian. In the present reality of my salvation, I had a new kind of life that now opened up relationship to God. This is akin to the discussion we had on reconciliation. But you do see what we're saying here, that that life that I had the day before was a kind of life, a category one life, biological life, but it wasn't the second kind of life, regeneration, regenerate life, not the kind of second life that God was talking about in Christ to Nicodemus in John 3. So now I have a relationship with God because of Christ. I was dead to God. Now I'm alive to God. There's the picture. So much should be connected to the word light and life when you think of the concept of regeneration. And you see it often. Think about this. Acts chapter 5 verse 20. Go and stand in the temple. Here's the instructions here. And speak to the people all the words of this. And I like the way the ESV translators have put a capital in front of this word life because it's it's certainly the summation of the message go go give them this message of life 
What kind of life? They're all alive. They're all eating and walking around and in relative good health in the temple. No, no. You're going to give this message of a second life. That's regeneration. You're going to open up something to them that has been closed because of their sin. Same thing over in Philippians chapter 2 verse 15. You can read that sentence and not think about regeneration, but we should because regeneration is a second life, is a new life, a new birth. He says in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without, ble- without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, a kind of initial phase of saving from this world to go back to our first point, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're here to shine lights to the world so that people can learn, as it says in the Sermon on the Mount, to glorify God. We want to be redemptive in this world and pull more people into this, holding fast to the word of life. I got to have it. I got to hold it. I don't lose it. And I shine it out there. Light and life fall under the category of this doctrine of regeneration. The message of life is the message of second life, regeneration, new life, new birth. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even that picture of evangelism is something that proves to the first evangelist, Paul, that his converts are really saved because they're holding out the word of life and holding fast to it as lights in the world. Do you follow that? The idea of second life, regeneration, begins in a theoretical or theological sense as giving us access to God that we didn't previously have. Now, the experience of it. We, need, we can speak to what the Bible has to say regarding this new life. What kind of life do I now have in, in a practical sense? If I was dead to God, now I'm alive to God. What about the rest of my life, the totality of my life? How has that affected all of my life? Regeneration, how does it change me? Well, the Bible says it should change you radically. As I say in the definition, it should reorient my life toward God, and there's nobody that can remain the same with their life reoriented to God. That's why I'm tired of those, and I hear it all the time. A lot of places I go and do ministry and hear people say, I've been a Christian all my life. Heard it again this week from two people, I think. How long have you been a Christian? I've been a Christian all my life. You've heard me preach on this before, haven't you? I don't like that statement because it's an impossibility. You can't be a Christian all your life. There has to come a time when you become a Christian and you're given a second life. You're born once, then you have to be born a second time. If you think you've had the relationship with God that you presently have for the totality of your life, you have no relationship with God. Do you follow that? If there's been some linear relationship with God that you've had from the time you were sucking your thumb as a child, then you're not saved. Because whatever it is you think you have with God did not involve a second birth that will reorient your life toward God in a way that it wasn't before. Maybe that kids grow up believing what their parents say, these indulgent parents that lie about what kind of kids they were toward God and everything else, I suppose. Don't get me started on that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 should be clear. And you can say, well, this is just for the drug addicts and the alcoholics and those visiting prostitutes. That's, no, no, no. This is for everyone. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's new life. You have a new life now that not only is theoretical or theological in having access to God, but now you have a effect of that, a reorientation of your life toward God. You have a new life. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, follow that statement carefully. This is a theological statement. We were buried, and we'll look at this more in a minute, in another point. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So, there was something in his dying that I died too, theoretically, theologically, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
We too, now we've shifted from theological to the practical ramifications of a reoriented life. We might walk in newness of life. So theologically, theoretically, something happened to my files. God took my old life, put it on the cross, dealt with the sin problem, was able to wash my account that was red and stained scarlet with sin and make it white as snow. That theoretical association with the death of Christ on a cross, now, just like he was raised from the dead, I now have a relationship with God. I have new life. And the thing that happens is a reorientation of my life toward God. I walk in newness of life. There's a effect that is different and clearly changed. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. Let's be more specific. Non-Christians are not born into the world with this relationship with the flesh that they have. They are in sync with the flesh. But it says here, those who belong to Christ, if you have been regenerate, you are his child. You've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Not just theoretically like we saw in, in Romans 6, in that it happened theologically and forensically and legally and, 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 and doctrinally, if you will. But it, you now have had this experience of saying, I'm at war with my flesh and its passions and desires. Obviously, the sinful passions and desires we're talking about. Therefore, he says, this ought to be the orientation of our lives. If we live by the Spirit, that's rebirth, that's regeneration, then we should also keep in step with the Spirit. Now I live that life in the outworking of my regeneration in a practical way. I won't go too far down that path today because next week, that's all I want to talk about. What does that look like? What are the problems people have in describing that, in, in saying things that aren't biblical? We'll try to look at what biblical sanctification is all about. But you get that. The reality of my Christian life, if I'm truly reborn, it creates a different orientation of my life and a whole different relationship with my body. As it says, as Peter says, I now am pitted against the passions of my flesh and they're waging war against my soul. That doesn't happen as a non-Christian, not the way it does for Christians. You're only trying to control your passions so that you can socially or in some community standard stay within the boundaries that you can get away with. Christians, though, fight it in a whole different way. In other words, you begin a war with your flesh when you're regenerate. And then God says, if you live by the Spirit, you've been granted life, then let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's do those things that he talks about in Colossians 3 of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. This may help. I don't know for what it's worth. I always think of this because I, I was in Ezekiel 36 today studying, and I look across the page. There's Ezekiel 37, and I thought, there's a picture. Now, grant me this latitude, if you would because it may not be the immediate focus of that passage, but there's connection to it, as, as you'll see. I'll explain this. But Ezekiel 36, we always quote the passage about the new covenant, new birth, new life, new heart, new spirit, washing. We've already dealt with the passage briefly in our lecture tonight. The next chapter then talks about God. That's the expansion of it. is now going to grant life to Israel. They're dead to God. He's going to grant them life, which certainly is the reality. We the immediate context for the new covenant is for Israel, but we apply, because Hebrews applies it, we apply it to our own new birth. And so it is in chapter 37, as we'll see, and I'm just going to make a parallel. Here's life number one. Here's the life you got because you were born on the planet. Then the Lord God, much like Adam, he formed you, as Psalm 139 says, not out of the dust of the earth, but the material stuff of your, your parents, and he knit you together in your mother's womb. It says here, though, of Adam, he formed the man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living creature. Now, that was before the fall, but you can say everyone since has been created. Hardware, body, software, God gave the spirit to that person, and then we have a living creature, a living soul, a living person. That's life number one. 
Ezekiel 37 paints the picture of the outgrowth of what it looks like when you get new life in yourself, in, inside of you. Now, he's speaking corporately, but we can certainly apply this individually. That's what I'm trying to say in terms of a, a legitimate second application of this passage. Ezekiel 37, 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord. Do you remember the dry bones, dry bones, them dry bones? Here, here's the passage. The Lord God, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Now across the page, we just read about, he's giving us a new heart, new life, new spirit, new person, move us to walk in step with his commandments. Here he's talking about it in another poetic way. I'm giving you a second life. I'm breathing life into you. And I'm going to say, you're going to live. Now he's talking about living people, tribes of Israel at one time that are going to turn to him ultimately in the tribulational period, fulfillment and fruition in the millennium. But the idea here is, is a great picture of regeneration. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we're not talking about physical life here. We're not talking about a physical resurrection here. We're talking metaphorically about spiritual life. What kind of spiritual life? A kind of spiritual life that biologically alive people who are dead to God don't have. This is the second birth. It's a good parallel, I think, that's worth noting. First birth described the same way the second birth is described. God breathes into us the breath of life, but he's going to breathe into us at regeneration his own, his own spirit, which makes me different, changes who I am, rebirth, new life before God. Now, with all that said, we have to tackle this. For all our Duck Dynasty fans or whoever else out there is associated with the baptismal regeneration, Church of Christ stuff. Let me make the cases I shouldn't have to convince very many of you, but at least let me equip you to think through the problem of people that say, hey, this is simultaneous with water baptism. I'm stating it is not simultaneous with water baptism. Is there association in the scripture? Of course, it's the believer's first act of obedience. That's why if you've been baptized here at the church, I, I, our pastors, we make you read that book, uh, Dyer's book, Baptism. I think it says the believer's first act of obedience. I think that's the title of it which is exactly what it is. It's the first act of obedience for Christians. But it's not simultaneous with water baptism. And you'll say, well, you just read it for us earlier, Pastor Mike, John 3, 5. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. And in verse 3, it said you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. So born again, in his mind, means water and spirit. Ha! There's baptism. And everybody who's going to teach baptismal regeneration. Now those words should make perfect sense to us now. They're talking about water baptism is this thing that causes, enables, sparks, is the purpose for, is the cause of regeneration. I get reborn. I get the life we're talking about here that makes me now connected to God, reoriented to God when I go through water baptism, dunked in in a tank. Is that what this means? Ezekiel 36, and I contend this is exactly what Nicodemus was chided for not being able to quickly recall to his mind when Jesus talked to a seminary professor about being born of water and spirit. Verse 25, verses 25 through 27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Now, the Bible is a good book to teach you good things and it's taught by a good teacher. And just like every good teacher, there are many things that are said that are not to be taken in a woodenly literal sense because if that's the case nobody's saved and no one's forgiven because god himself did not sprinkle clean water on any of you no one if you want to tie this to baptism that it's not it's not happened for anybody clearly we're making this this analogy 
of forgiveness. And the symbol of that in this, in this passage is water. Just like some of the ritual cleansings that went on in the Old Testament times that are there in the book of Leviticus, that is a picture of God doing what needs to be done, and that is taking our sins and, and removing them from us. We talk about him washing our sins away. Great, but there's no water involved in that. Just like the next verse, verse 26. I will give you a new heart. Did anyone get a new heart? No. Metaphorically speaking, I got a new center of my, my, my person. Who I am. My spirit is made new. You didn't get a new heart. No, it says you get a new heart. Well, not a literal heart. Just like I didn't get literal water sprinkled on me to get forgiveness. And a new spirit I will put into you. Well, there's a literal statement, I suppose, of what it is we're talking about when we talk about being, being given a new heart. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Did anybody have that surgery in the room? Didn't happen. This is metaphorical language that teaches a very important truth of the reality of something very significant that was bad and unrelatable to God being extracted so he could give us now a heart of flesh. No one had a heart transplant, a literal heart transplant to come to God. And I'll put my spirit within you. And even that, you say, well, there's a literal statement, I suppose. But you do know, and as I often try to point out when we talk about the indwelling spirit, that is even an analogy that has something to do with the relational connectedness to the spirit of God. Because you would admit that God is omnipresent. Smile at me if you believe that God is omnipresent. You believe that. Does that mean that the spirit of God is in me right now? How about, how about Charles Manson sitting up there in prison? Absolutely, because he's everywhere. If you want to talk spatially, the spirit is everywhere. But when you say the spirit invades someone's life, you mean something else. And that's not that he has perception there in that person, because God has perfect perception in everyone. He sees the evil and the good, although he didn't use any photons to see it. He doesn't use any you know, sound waves to perceive it. But he perceives everywhere. His knowledge is everywhere. But when someone is invaded by the Spirit, what we mean is there's some kind of relationship that is so intimate and so close and so intertwined. It's as though you are a vessel and and, and he's poured into you. But he's not in you. Not in the sense that we think, you know, where? What part of me? What What cavity? If you think too spatially about this, because the analogy is spatial, you may miss the reality of what we're talking about. Because you may say, well, I got him in me because he said he's in me, but I have no sense of relationship and intimacy with the living God. I just prayed a prayer and hope that whatever he said was true and he's in there somewhere, I don't know where, but inside of me. You have to get to the place of realizing these are analogies to teach some very profound truths. I'll put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. And again, even that, walk, it has nothing to do with your gait, nothing with how you put one foot in front of the other. This is about your lifestyle. To walk in my statutes, be careful to obey my rules. Now, with all that said, with all that explanation, let me read it again. And then we step back and say, let's get what he's teaching us. And that is forgiveness and relationship. I have to have forgiveness and relationship. Water and spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your... I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Now, Jesus says, John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You're talking to a seminary prof about his knowledge of the only Bible he's got, the Old Testament. He's going to look at that and go, I know what you're talking about. But then he either played dumb or he was ignorant and he needed his doctorate revoked because he didn't understand this passage. And Jesus chides him, you're a teacher here in Israel and you don't know these things? You need forgiveness. You need relationship. The Spirit of God is going to accomplish that. The picture is water and spirit.
Well, what about water baptism? Yeah, we need to be baptized in water because that is what God asked us to do. It is a symbol, just like taking the Lord's Supper is a symbol of a profound theological truth. But when Peter talks about baptism, as I often ask you at the baptismal service, every time I ask you this, does baptism save you? You're supposed to answer which one, because clearly in Scripture there's more than one. And here's a great example of that, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. He talks about baptism, which corresponds to this. This in the preceding verse is Noah's Ark that saved people through the flood. It now saves you. Okay, baptism saves me. You got to ask the question, which one? And he answers, not the removal of dirt from the body, not the being dunked into water, not the washing of your body in a, in a ceremony or a ritual. No, no, no. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. That's the baptism that saves you. As someone in real time and experience calls to God, appeals to God, and God then through the resurrection takes that life and places him into Christ. Baptism. We're not talking about water baptism. He makes that clear in 1 Peter chapter 3 that saves us. Baptism does save us. I agree with that. But not the washing off of our bodies in a pool or a river or a baptismal jacuzzi. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. What kind of baptism are we talking about? Was I in any way put into the body of Christ at his death on the cross at Golgotha by some kind of water ritual? Of course not. But I was connected with him so intimately by God that when God punished him on a cross, God was punishing me. I was placed into his death to get the benefits of his death, not in a physical pool of water, but a baptism of association with him by faith. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we already quoted this, we too might walk in newness of life. The kind of baptism that's in view in Romans 6 is not water baptism. It can't be. There's nothing that water can do to somehow put me into the crucifixion of Christ. But God does that by his spirit judicially, forensically, theologically. More distinctions in the Bible. Mark 1.8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm assuming those are two radically different things. Yeah, well then why do I need to get baptized in water? Let me get in line with Jesus or get baptized by the Spirit. Yeah, well, you got to do both because the first one was commanded to get in line to be baptized with the baptism of repentance with John. And then at the end of his ministry in Matthew 28, get baptized once you make disciples who've repented of their sins. So we're supposed to get baptized in water, but there's a distinction between the baptism with the Spirit and the baptism with water. That's clearly made in Mark, Luke, and, and John. Luke 3. I want to show you this because he adds another element here. One of judgment. Luke 3, 16. We preached on this many moons ago. John answered them, John the Baptist that is, answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water. He who is mightier than I is coming and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now when I preached through this, I guess it's been a couple years ago now, the idea of this, I, translators look at this two different ways, or I should say commentators, preachers, scholars. I certainly choose to side with those who see this as you got two options here, actually three in this passage. Get in line and be baptized in the water with John. Holy, uh, Jesus is coming. He's going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit, which is the kind of baptism that puts me into the benefits of his death and his resurrected life, or he's going to baptize you with fire. Well, it doesn't say or, it says and, because in that crowd, he's speaking to the whole crowd. There are some there that are going to be baptized to be placed into Christ and, and have this thing called regeneration. And then there are those 
that are going to be baptized with his judgment. And I try to prove that when I preach through this. By the way, John was quoting things that related to the judgment of God and the fire of God that was coming on the unrepentant. And I can prove that or you can listen to that passage or that sermon in in Luke 3 and hear my case for that. So I got a baptism being placed into judgment, baptism being placed into Christ by the Spirit, or baptism being placed into water. There's three different baptisms right there. There is therefore no condemnation. That's what I want. I want to be saved from the coming judgment of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just give you one example of so many in the New Testament. What's important is not that I believe in Christ, although that is, of course. It's not that I I sing of Christ or I worship Christ. Those are important too, yes. But am I in Christ? Am I seen as having my files in his file folder? Does he look, God look at me and have me be someone who's had his sins canceled and paid for and the righteousness of Christ enveloping my life. That's what's important. And that frees me from the condemnation that is to come, the wrath of God. Of course, I already quoted this one, but worth jotting down, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations. All the the gospels are going to make that clear. I got to get people to repent of their sins. I've got to have them become followers of Christ. These are the things that happen at conversion. I have them, another word for it is, be regenerate. They have to become born of of, of God. Now, I'm supposed to do that everywhere. Baptizing them. Who? Regenerate people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the made disciples, the regenerate, converted people, the justified people, now get water baptism. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, maybe a verse that the disciples of Church of Christ, their people quote. They'll say, oh, look right here. It says, one body, one spirit. Just as you're called to one hope, it belongs to your call. One Lord, there it is, verse 5, one faith and one baptism. Only one baptism, Mike. You keep talking about two baptisms. Actually, you talked about three. I could talk about five. There's as many as five different baptisms described in Scripture. But it says right there, there's only one. And one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all. Okay, I stand corrected. No, listen, every one of these things, you do understand there's more than one. But there's only one that matters. Look at this, one body. Now, can you open your Bibles and look through your Bibles and say, is there any references to the body? Because it just says one body, and I'm thinking, oh, there are all kinds of bodies. There's the body of Christ that is filled with regenerate people. That's the body of Christ that the Father sees. He knows those who are his and bear the seal, let him forsake, you know, turn from, from wickedness. There's the actual body of Christ that died on the cross, and that was so important. He got pierced with a spear, he got marks in his hand. There's the bo- There's another body that's important. There's the visible body of the church that can, it consists of the wheat and the tares. Oh, and there's a lot of talk about the sanctity of my body. I'm a temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. Oh, there's lots of bodies that are important in the Bible, but there's only one body. One body that really ultimately matters and what's in view there, the body of the redeemed. And in that context, he's concerned about Jews and Gentiles not wanting to be one body, the real redeemed people of God. One spirit. Open up your Bibles. Is there only one spirit in the Bible? Oh, there's a lot more than that. Matter of fact, even in the book of Revelation, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he's described as the seven spirits of God. You certainly have within the church a bunch of people, and we all have spirits. You get over the book of Ecclesiastes, it says there's a different kind of spirit. The spirit of animals, different kind of spirit, but a spirit. I got all kinds of spirits talked about in the body. Are they important? A lot of them are important. Animals not as important as people. People not as important as as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, but in this case, only one that really matters. One body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope. You open up your Bibles, are there, is there only one hope discussed? Is there only one important hope? All kinds of hope. First Timothy 3, he hopes to come to you soon. 
He hopes to do ministry here. It is his ardent hope and desire. We see it all the time. Important hopes. But there's really, when it comes to, comes down to the hope of salvation is the one hope. One Lord. You read that passage in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5. I can cover this in the end in verse 6 as well. When it says there's many lords and many gods. Well, wait a minute. Is there only one Lord? Well, there's only one Lord for us. There's only one Lord that matters. And there's only one God that matters. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the Holy Bible... The Bible states emphatically, there are lots of lords and lots of gods. Uh, One faith. Is there only one faith described in the Bible? No, lots of faiths described in the Bible. Faith in a lot of things. Even the demons have faith, it says in James chapter 2, and they shudder. So there's lots of faith described, but only one faith that matters, saving faith. The faith that he's taught them and described to them is essential and imperative. Oh, then we get to one baptism. Only one baptism mentioned in the Bible? Do you see what I've done already? Of course there's more than one baptism in the Bible. There's several baptisms in the Bible. So you want to throw this proof text out, you're going to have to be consistent and say, we got to play some really strange games. Then every time we read the word body, spirit, uh, hope, Lord, or faith, I can only speak of one person or one thing. Not true. But there's only one baptism that matters. And which one is it? Is it being baptized into the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ? Or is it being dunked in water? No, it's the one being baptized into Christ. All right. That little exercise I just thought might be helpful because this is one of the proof texts people throw at me to say, oh, baptism that matters is getting dunked in water. That's when people get saved. Paul, who's so emphatic that he is the one who architected the evangelistic efforts in the church of Corinth. He says, you got many teachers, many instructors, but you only got one father, speaking of the multiple fathers, by the way, one father, evangelistic father in your life, which is me, Paul says. At the beginning of this book, people are making groups, factions, and divisions in the church in part over who baptized them. Paul says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Now think about a man who cares about salvation coming in and saying, I'm glad I baptized none of you. Really? So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name, which is an emphatic, or I should say a hyperbolous way of talking about, that's not what they were saying in Corinth, but it was almost like it because they were so factious and divisive. Then he adds, parenthetically, verse 16, well, I guess, thinking of Crispus and Gaius, I guess I did also baptize the family of Stephanus, the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Why? Because that's not the important thing. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, wait a minute. I thought baptism was the agency of salvation. No, not it. The power of the gospel is not in the water baptism, which is being discussed in this context. I'm preaching the gospel. That's what God sent me to do. I want to see people saved, not with words, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So the gospel message is the saving power of the cross. When people then with that conscience or that clear conscience with sincerity call out and make an appeal to God. And he says, not about the water baptism. So when they say to you, well, and they say it in different ways. Baptismal regenerations are either like the Catholics, and there are some people in the Church of Christ that talk this way. And that is this. You know, the very act, it's the, as I've said before, the ex opere operato. In Latin, the idea of just by the doing, the work is done. Just by getting baptized, like a baby who doesn't know anything, they become children of God by the grace of God through the act, as divinely sanctioned by the church. Some people believe that in Christian, non-Roman Catholic churches. Others will say, and this is where it gets real muddy for these, but well, it's not that I'm saying that you could be brainless getting baptized and get saved. It's just that God somehow intimately ties those together and somehow salvation and baptism take place at the same time. And all I'd have to say, that'd be quite a coincidence, right? 
If that's every time someone gets baptized, that's really when they come to repentance and faith. That's not the case. So all of that needs to be swept aside as a misunderstanding of, of the teaching of Scripture, and hopefully that's enough time on that tonight. Whew, I'm glad he's done with that. You do have people that teach this, right? Or you walk, watch Duck Dynasty, at least. Not to throw those favorite bearded guys under the bus that you like so much, but this doctrine is out there. People teach it and believe it. They ask about when were you saved. They always tell their, their baptismal story. It is not about water baptism. That has been, I hope, made clear tonight. Talk about justification with the time we have remaining. Let's define it real quick. Justification. Justification, again, is the act of God. God sovereignly choosing to justify. What is that? The heart of it is declaring sinners to be righteous. This is an important phrase now, before him. Declaring sinners righteous before him. As, as the emergent guys say, you can't tell me God's saving Christians from himself. That's exactly what I'm saying. In the holiness and righteousness of God, he has to save sinners from himself. And justification is him taking those sinners and presenting them to himself as righteous. It's the changing of the status, as some theologians like to say, forensically, legally, of that sinner declaring him now righteous before him. He's the audience. By, here's another important theological word, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. How can you declare the guilty innocent? The Bible says you shouldn't do that. Well, God is declaring the innocent innocent on the payment of his son. Well, we're guilty. And in that sense, we are sinners simply being declared righteous, but God doesn't do that out of nothing. He does it by the fact that the payment of Christ has taken human righteousness and taken my human sin and had human payment for human sin and human righteousness applied to an unrighteous person. That imputation or crediting might be a good word to help you with that word imputation. The crediting of righteousness to sinners. He declares them righteous. Justification. Those words, by the way, same root. Dikeo is the Greek word. It's the Greek root for a lot of Greek words that relate to that idea of being made righteous, being made just, just, justice, righteousness, right. Those are words are all from the same word group. They all come from the same root. You can interchange those, which when you do, you start to realize the breadth of this concept in the New Testament. All right, you wrote that down. It's necessity. We don't need any much time on this. You know it's necessary because if the end game is for me to be saved from the coming wrath of God, to be saved from my fallen body, to be saved from this fallen world, that's all under the heading of glorification. So to get glorified, I got a few things I got to have to have happen before that. God's got to predestine me. I got to be called. I have to be, there it is, justified. And then I get glorified. So in the chain, that has to take place. I have to have justification and without it, uh, I can't be saved. Important, obviously. So you're not a Christian unless you're regenerate and you're not a Christian unless you're justified. Obviously, the thing I think most good Protestants understand about this is that justification is a gracious gift. The point is made over and over and over again in the Bible that is a great that it is a gracious gift. Romans three twenty three through twenty five. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by His grace as a gift. As if we didn't understand what the word grace meant, which many people in our day do not. Obviously, this is a gift. This is granted to us. It's not earned. And it's done through the redemption, as I said in my definition. It's based on the work of Christ, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a payment, a propitiation, 
a satisfaction of God's demands by his blood, and it is to be received by my good behavior. No. Are you still awake, anybody? (laughs) By faith. I trust him. It's a gift. That is what justification is. I'm not hoping to be justified as a Christian, assuming all the things behind the curtain that I'm predestined, I'm called. The idea of my salvation in, in, in real time in my life is at a moment in time I am justified, just like at a moment in time I am regenerate, and it's done by faith. I don't say, I hope so, I'm working on it. You, you can't be in process on that. Best way, much like regeneration, to compare regeneration with relational death, relational separation, be good for us to compare justification with the concept of condemned, being condemned as it often does in the Bible. It compares these two. Romans eight thirty three and 34. Who's going to bring a charge? Here are the legal terms. You smashed my car. Well, who's going, to, who's going to charge you for that? Who's going to condemn you for that? Who's going to bring those charges against you? If you're God's elect, if you've been that predestined group who's now been called and now justified, who can condemn because God's just justified you? Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He could condemn, but he doesn't condemn because now he's on your team. More than that, he's been raised. He not only died, but he's at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. So God looks at someone who can be charged with a crime, sin crime, and Christ now has become the advocate and God has decided it's settled. Propitiation. It's been paid for. I accept the payment and no longer am I going to see any charges brought against you because I'm the one who should be bringing the charges. You're not, you're not condemned anymore. The one who condemns becomes the one who justifies. Another passage from that discussion with Nicodemus in John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, there's the parallel terms. More on that next week. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, here it comes, remains on him. Just like... Romans 2, we're storing up as non-Christians by our impenitent hearts, our non-repentant hearts. We're storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath. So I'm already guilty. The guilt is ready to break out against me. God's justice is about to come down. That's the reality of the condemned, but now there's justification. Someone who's been cleared of those charges. That's the picture. That's the tension. That's the this and that and the contrast of justification with having God's wrath remaining upon you with the guilt, with a charge that's valid being on your case. We don't have that. Our guilt is forgiven by justification. How does he do it? By fulfilling the demands of the law. What does the law demand? Well, here's what it says in the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. So I deserve to be punished relationally and in many other ways, actively and passively. Relationally is passive, by the way, right? I should be taken out of the presence of God. I should be away from his presence and from all of his generosity. I should be somehow severed from any life of of God And then he's also, should, the law would demand that if I did this, this, and this, I should have that, that, and that done in response to me. That's the fulfillment of the law's demands, though, have been accomplished in Christ. Look at the way this is put in Romans 8. We've already read the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm regenerate. I'm justified. And here's what it says. The law of the Spirit has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, what's the law? The law is if you sin, you die. The law is if you reap Uh, sow this, then you reap that. But there's a new law on the books, the law of the spirit. And it's the spirit of granting life, regeneration. And he set me free in Christ. There's the justification. You see both regeneration and justification in in verse two. I have new life that I've been granted by the work of the spirit, chosen by God to have that happen. And then I've been justified. I've been cleared, freed 
from the penalty, freed from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. I couldn't keep it. I couldn't successfully go before God without sin. And he did that by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Mike's sin, your sin, her sin, all pinned to the cross in God's judicial mind. And he paid for my penalty there and fulfilled the law. Mike's sinned this many times in that many ways. But here's the thing. I've already paid for Mike's sin. That's justification. He can now count me righteous in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now... What God demands of human beings, human righteousness, it's fulfilled in me. That's the act of declaring sinners righteous on the imputed righteousness of Christ. And here's next week. Who walked, by the way, here's the evidence of it, not by the, according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we will touch on that in just a second, a little bit. That's the evidence of this, which we will get to. I forgot right now. F. Justified, just like baptism, just like a lot of words in the Bible, is used in more than one way. We must know this. If you look up the word justified, or any of the Dikaio uh, Greek cognates, the first cousins of that, of that root, you're going to find that the usage of that word in any dictionary or lexicon is going to define the word, in some cases, as proved to be right, in terms of manifesting the reality of something. God is going to manifest the reality of my right standing before him by the work of Christ. Let me just put it that way and get to that. Before God. How can I be proved to be right before God? How am I justified before God? That's why those two words before God and the definition were so important to me. I want to make sure that I think in terms, first of all, and primarily of my justification before God. I want to be righteous before God so he doesn't condemn the guilty. And he really, in his own mind, doesn't free the guilty because of Christ. So before God, it's done by Christ alone. If, if I'm going to be made right before God and God isn't going to accept me, Christ is going to have to do that work. For by works of the law, if I say, well, I did a lot of good things. I'm almost as good as Saul was who became Paul as a Pharisee. Well, no, no one's going to be justified. No human will be justified in his sight, made right in his sight, proved to be right. Since the law really only reveals my sin. It may reveal I got less sin than you or you got less sin than me. But still, if we're honest, it shows us all that we've got sin and that's the problem. And that's how that passage ends. Verse 23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God put him forward as a propitiation in his blood. It's to be received by faith. So Christ says, I will pay the penalty. You can be made righteous, declared righteous by the work of Christ. We've already covered that. Maybe one more verse might help. Since therefore, this is Romans 5 verse 9, we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So I know I'm okay and ready for the coming judgment because God has justified me by his blood. That's all review. And I probably don't even need this passage either, but we're going to get to it in Luke 18 as we work through the book, Lord willing, verses 11 through 14, that picture of the Pharisee on the Temple Mount and then the tax collector. Now think of the orientation here. They're both there to worship God. They're both there to pray to God. They're both there to make connection with God. So the concern is before God, am I justified? Am I made right? Am I proved right? Am I acceptable? The Pharisee standing, going, praying to himself, hey, I, I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other men, ex extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I tithe all that I get. But the tax collector standing, standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, the sinner, went to his home justified. The question is, before who? Before the ones they were there to worship before the God that they're concerned with. 
they're praying to. Now, one was not proved right before God, the Pharisee, but the other one was. Why? Because of his humility, because everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled, because everyone's a sinner, and if you exalt yourself without reference to your sin, you don't understand you're standing before a holy God, but the one who humbles himself, admits his sin, says what this man says, well, that one will be exalted. He will be made right and proved right before God. By what? By a gift. That's what Romans goes on to say. Now, when justification is used in a context to be proved right, you know that you can have another object. Prove right before who? Whom, I should say. And that, if the question is people, how am I proved right before people? Well, then the Bible answers that question by my works. I am proved right before people by my works. What does that mean? Remember this passage we looked at back in Luke 7, if you've been with us? And there's two references to justification in this passage, but this one is terse and short and proverbial, so I'll throw it out there. Wisdom is justified by her children. Now, is wisdom need justification before God? No, God is the author of wisdom, and wisdom before him, it doesn't need any justification. It's God's wisdom. But wisdom is justified by her children to whom? To people that see them. They realize that's a wise decision. That's a wise path. That's the right thing to forsake. That's the right thing to pursue. Wisdom is justified by her children. Or to put it more bluntly, as it relates to our, relates to our relationship with God and our relationship with people, well, if I'm justified before God, see, then there's something that justifies me before people. Someone may say, hey, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Who is the object here? Who's the audience to this concern? Show me, show you, I've got this, you've got that. Show me, show me, show me. We're not talking about the temple experience of of Luke 18. And my eyes lifted to God. Am I right before God? Now it's, you got faith? Prove it. Show it. If you want to be proved right or justified, then it's going to be by your behavior, which the Bible has a ton to say. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But their theology is not proved out or justified in people's eyes by their behavior. They're wicked, they're evil. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Oh, he sure was. Before God? No. No. Before who? Everyone. We all count him as righteous. Look at what he did. Look at his faith in God. It's on display. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Keep reading. And the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, when was it counted to him as righteousness? The moment he believed God. And before God, he was justified and God imputed righteousness to him. But what about the people around who would call him something, a good guy, a bad guy, an okay guy, a righteous guy. Well, he was justified by everybody there. Why? Because they called him a friend of God. Look at this man. Look at his works on display. So that you see now that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. One of the reasons Martin Luther struggled over the book of James because he didn't like that one sentence because over in Romans chapter 3 and 4, clearly it's the other way around. We just read it. I mean, we are justified by faith. And we say the sons and daughters of the Reformation. We are saved by faith alone. Well, it says, and the Catholic will be quick to point this out to you if he knows his Bible, the only time you see the phrase faith alone is right there in James chapter 2. And it says, you're not justified by faith alone. And my point is, who was the object? To be proved right in the eyes of whom? God or people watching? People that are going to make determinations about my faith. 
Clearly, that's the context. And he gives us another. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Her faith in the God of Israel to serve him and be on his side and not on the side of Jericho was lived out and proved to the people who said, we'll save your life, put the ribbon in your window, and we won't conquer you guys. We're going to trust that you're with us if you prove it by your works. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So as the reformers like to say, or the children of the Reformation, we certainly believe in salvation by faith alone because that's what the book of Romans clearly teaches. But that faith that saves us is never alone. And it's never alone. And those around can say, hey, I see your faith. It's proven to be right because of your works. And it will always be there. Now, if you think about that, proving your faith, proved to be right before God and proved to be right before people. And I'm saying it's legitimate to think about my works being the proving to be right in the eyes of people. Then there's a danger that's opened up too. And we've got to address it as our very last verse of the night. Luke 16, 15. He said to them, and here's our word, justify. You are those who justify yourselves before men. Now, if James is sitting around writing James chapter 2, by the inspiration of God, he's going, well, we should. No, you're right, we should. We should. As real, organic expressions of my faith in God. I'm justified before God, and my work should prove the reality of my faith. You should be able to see the justification of my claim of justification by my works. But if I'm not organically doing this, if this is not a natural outgrowth of my justification before God, this is just a concern about all I care about is what you think of me. If it's a manufacturing of something that'll hold up a billboard so that you can see by these things that I'm right with God. See, it's not organic. It's manufactured. Then you know what? You'll miss it. And eventually all you'll do is adapt what you think righteousness is based on what people think righteousness is externally and that's going to be a problem god knows your heart he knows you're not right before him for what is exalted among men if all you want to do is stick your finger in the air and see what people consider righteous and then do that you know what there's so many things that people think is fantastic in their book that's not to god whatever exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god obviously not everything there are some things that people exalt that god also exalts but The problem is with this kind of relativistic, let me put on the right mask for this crowd, that's not the kind of justification before men that we're concerned with. So justification before God, faith alone. Justification before men works. A kind of justification that's appropriate, James 2. A kind of justification before men that all you're concerned about is justification before men. And Luke 16 says that's not the kind that you want to concern yourself with. Because oftentimes our expression of our faith, the justification of our claim to justification before God is going to hack some people off and they will hate that. But it will still be like, I mean, a lot of people had to think that Abraham was crazy taking his son up the, to Mount Moriah. And yet it was to those who understood justification of his faith. All right. Try to cover a few things there that I think are important to correct in our minds.